Welcome to Going In Tight. Coming out loose. Welcome back, everybody, to Going In Tight, Coming Out Loose. This is Chris Gibson and Bart Lewis. We've got a fun guest for you today in Eric Estep. He is the YouTuber that has Out of the Groove. He has started his own podcast network with AE Engine. Lots of cool things going on. We take you behind the scenes of what he's doing, how this YouTube channel grew from nothing into something. I mean, the guy went from doing it in his car, Bart, like you asked him. He went from doing it in his car to now he's got this whole network of folks that he's working with. So super cool to have Eric on the show. And we're going to jump right in with our interview with him. Eric, we, we thank you so much for being on our show and, and kind of getting the, a little behind the scenes look about how you all you got started with NASCAR and how you became a fan. We A lot of people watch you daily, but we, we don't necessarily know the story of how you got into NASCAR. So we know that you got into NASCAR at a young age, but you didn't come from a family that liked NASCAR. So what was it about NASCAR that got you so hooked? Man, I don't know what it was. I think as a kid so I was thinking I was six seven years old at the time I think like most six seven year old boys I enjoyed playing with Hot Wheels cars and I like Mario Kart and stuff and I you know my parents got me NASCAR Thunder 2004 (laughs) and uh, I just remember playing that game a lot it was different because it was like it was like one of the first realistic you know racing games again it wasn't Mario Kart and so I got into it I think really by playing the video games and kind of learning a lot of the names and the faces and the paint schemes and then when I finally saw it on TV, it was sort of, even as like a six, seven year old, I kind of thought like, oh, that was just a video game that still wasn't a real thing based on a real thing. And then when I saw it on TV and realized, oh no, this is a real thing. I guess that blew my mind. I guess I just had no idea race cars were an actual thing. That always seemed like <laughs> fiction, like like fantasy, like the same way, you know, wizards and stuff. It's like, oh, we see stories about them, but they're not real. I was like, oh, that's the same thing with race cars. You know, they're not a real thing. <laughs> But my little six-year-old brain got blown when I saw, I think it was a race at Pocono. This is what I tell people. Like, I, I don't remember what race it was, but I remember watching Dale Earnhardt Jr. in the eight car pass, I believe it was Jeff Gordon, because in my head, I remember a blue and red car, probably Jeff Gordon. Um, and my dad, who's not a racing fan, was on the couch watching with me. And he just goes, man, that is, it, that's crazy that they're able to do that and not crash. And like that, that stood out to me. I don't know why. I was like, okay, so not only is this real, but this must be challenging. This must be really hard to do well. Because on TV, you're watching, especially, I think it was at Pocono, you're like, oh, they're just holding it straight and occasionally turn it. <laughs> yeah. not, not, all, not much to it, but something about that stood out to me. So I think that was the first time I really got into racing. And uh, I started following it closely because then by playing the video game, I was familiar with a lot of the paint schemes and the drivers. And I started to see people I recognized and it, mm-hmm. it felt really real. And, and I, I, just, I just got hooked on it. What really hooked me though, is when I convinced my dad to take me to a race in 2005. So I would have been, that would have been for my eighth birthday. So it was a year or so later, probably. Um, and that's really when you know, I, I'd, I'd been convinced at that point that racing was real. NASCAR was a real thing, but it wasn't until you actually see the cars rumbling by you and you feel that, that you just sort of like, then it was, that, that's when I realized how much of a spectacle and how um, unique it really was. And, and at mm-hmm. that point, I think I was for sure hooked. Uh, that would have been 2005. Yeah. That's so true. I've, that was the same for me as far as when you actually see it. And I stand behind that when somebody actually sees it, like there's a great chance they're going to, they're going to become a fan because it just blows your mind, like how awesome it is. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm just curious, we're a little bit older than you, but what was your, what was the video game you were playing? It was NASCAR Thunder 2004 for the PlayStation 2. 
I still have, I still have my PlayStation. It's not hooked up or anything, but I still have that game somewhere. It probably still works. I don't think I destroyed the disc too much. I don't think I drooled on it or anything, but um, <laughs> it's, I, I played all the NASCAR games growing up. So I had, well, not all of them, but I had Thunder 2004. I had 06. I had 07. 07 was the one I probably played the most. Those are the EA sports days. Um, I remember getting NASCAR Thunder or not NASCAR Thunder. It was NASCAR something 2001. Um, I've got that years later because I just got a PlayStation One out of nowhere for like twenty bucks, and I was like, "Oh, I'll play the NASCAR." I had that and like Crash Bandicoot, and that was all I ever had on the PlayStation <laughs> One. Um, but yeah, so I, I would, you know, NASCAR games were instrumental in me kind of learning the tracks, the drivers, and getting into the sport. As I'm sure it was for a lot of young fans, especially in the 2000s. I know most of my friends that are around my age that like NASCAR. It was for them same games: NASCAR Thunder, Chase for the Cup in some rare cases, the, the games that came out in like 2011, 2012, but you know, not usually not as frequently, usually it was the EA sports games, but that was, you know, the games were important. I was playing yeah. like NASCAR 99 on Nintendo. Mm-hmm. I was before that. I was, <laughs> yeah. I think I was 97 or 98 and it was on the original 97. PlayStation. Yeah. And yeah. I had 97, 98, 99, but it was on my Nintendo 64. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so crystal clear graphics, I'm sure. Oh yeah. Perfect. So what was it? You're, you're from Texas. What was it like growing up a NASCAR fan in central Texas? Yeah. I was, so I kind of was in between like central and I mainly grew up in Houston. So even yeah. more away from, didn't even have like, I mean, circuit Americas wasn't built until like 2012, but I didn't have any mm-hmm. racetracks in Houston, really. IndyCar came here once. I didn't even know about it. You know, that, that was about it. Um, there weren't and still aren't many NASCAR fans where I grew up. You know, I was kind of the only real, nascar fan in like my elementary school my middle school in high school there was this one dude that wore a kyle bush jacket to school sometimes but i don't think he really followed the sport that closely i think he liked the m&m's none jacket. of them do yeah um so i i'd show up to school sometimes wearing a freaking bright yellow matt kenseth dollar general pit jacket and i'm tall i'm a big dude so i'm like i goodness gracious like a lighthouse walking down the hallway um but uh no, yeah, growing up, there really weren't many racing fans. So it was kind of, I had to make my own entertainment and try to convince my friends to, to follow the sport. I remember I'd have kids on my baseball team. I'd ask them, like, hey, you can watch the race this weekend. There's one guy who kind of liked Carl Edwards. I got him to be kind of a Carl Edwards fan. I haven't talked to him in years. I wonder if he's still a racing fan. Probably not. You know, in elementary school, I remember like, I don't know. NASCAR used to kind of be a thing. I shouldn't say that NASCAR wasn't completely a thing because I remember in like fifth grade, there was something we did with that was called like NASCAR points where each week, the class of like 30 of us, we'd pick a driver for that week off like a list. Maybe the teacher or the principal really liked NASCAR. And I just didn't realize it at the time. And you'd get points based on that, how based on how they did that weekend. And you could like turn those points in as well as with these other like credits for like, you know, when you get an answer, right, here's a, a school dollar thing. Woohoo. You can buy a pencil eraser if you get five of these, you know, that kind of thing. Oh yeah. So you'd be incentivized to pick good drivers and, I just pick Matt Kenseth every week and live and die by that. It worked out more often than not. But aside from that, it was like, no, there really were no other racing fans. You kind of had to make your own entertainment. Yeah, that was for Chris and I, it was it was like a phenomenon in the nineties NASCAR era. Just like it, it got popular and the passive fan was interested in it, but it it kind of ran its course and um what it became less popular. And that was when we sort of took a break, like we followed it. But uh, we weren't we weren't like gung ho fans because it was a little bit of like this isn't so cool to like. Mm-hmm. It, did you stay a fan like a hardcore fan like six seven onward or was there ever a point where you took a little break? 
I certainly there 2011 was the year I really kicked it into high gear because between 2009 and 2010, I didn't watch as closely and it wasn't because I didn't enjoy it. It was at the time I was, I was playing baseball. We'd have tournaments on the weekends all through the spring and summer. So I just ended up missing a lot of races. I'd, I'd like look it up when I got home who won. Oh, Tony Stewart won. Okay, great. You know, I, I'd, I'd still keep up with it vaguely. Like um, it, it's kind of sad. I didn't, you know, my favorite driver is Matt Kenseth. People know that for the most part. Um, I didn't see him win the 2009 Daytona 500. I didn't even tune in and watch. I was busy. I, I think I had a baseball tournament or something like that. I found out the next day that he won and I was like, oh, dang, I wish I'd seen it, you know, but yeah. uh, 2011, I stopped playing baseball. And in 2011, Matt Kenseth won or Trevor Bain won the Daytona 500. And I watched that. And I remember thinking, that's really cool. That, that was like, I forgot how special it is when you have a big surprising winner like this. But then a few months later, Matt Kenseth won at Texas. And I would, I'd been to Texas a few times before. It was my closest thing I had to a home track. I wasn't at that race, but it was kind of, you know, it was the type of thing that was in the, the Houston Chronicle. Matt Kenseth mm-hmm. wins Texas race. I was like, oh, that's, that's awesome. And so 2011, he had a good year. And the Edwards-Stewart uh, battle was so interesting. The final 10 races that the second half of 2011, I got hooked right back in on it. And really from that point on forward, of course, 2012, last year, the Gen 5 Kenseth wins the Daytona 500 that I think honestly that race might have sealed it for me because when he won that that was as hype as I've been in a long time about any major sport because I'm a sports fan I like all sorts of sports but I'd never gotten that hyped over something I think 2011 2012 that really wrote me back in and in a big big way. So at what point did you take all of that hype? And it was clearly right around that, you know, 13, 14, 15 year old age that you were building the hype into it. When did you take that and start saying, I'm going to make YouTube videos? So I first started my YouTube channel. It was not targeted in any way, shape or form. I just wanted to make, I was 13 and I'd been making goofy videos with my friends for a couple of years and they unrelated to sports or NASCAR or anything, just goofy stuff, early YouTube type stuff. And I finally uh, was like, I should post some of them to YouTube. Why not post them and get 20, 30 views. I, I still remember the first comment I ever got on a video was it's bad with like three exclamation points. <laughs> and I went, that's tough. That is, that's unfortunate. Um, but uh, the first video I ever did that was NASCAR related, I'd seen some other people do stuff with NASCAR diecast cars. So I thought I have a bunch of these old NASCAR diecast cars, 164 scale hanging around. I'll do a stop motion video around the, my living room coffee table at my parents' house, you know? And, and so I did that and at the end of 2011. And that was my first video to get like 100 views, 200 views. And I was like, oh, and again, this is 2011. I was getting back into NASCAR. I'm like, oh maybe there's a way I could bridge this gap. I love making, making videos. I love, you know, the idea of entertainment and all that type of stuff. Like I I like filmmaking, video making, the photography, the editing. I like all that. I also like racing, you know, Hey, just making random skits as a 13 year old is not really working out for me. Maybe I should focus on two things I'm passionate about and combine them into one. So that was really kind of the jumping off point for me was when that first video, it's still on my channel. I don't remember what I called it. The double E 500 or something like that. NASCAR stop motion. It's still up there that video was really the jumping off point when that video seemed, you know, got more than just two comments or, you know, four likes and more than 20 views. I was like, Whoa, this is something, this is for real. And, and it kind of just took off from there. How long do these stop motion videos take? I mean, we messed around with it. We had this, we had vine when we were in college and we made a couple of them and goofed around, but how long do they take to do these like full almost race recaps of what you're doing? 
Yeah. So what I would do, like my videos when I was doing those consistently were five, six, seven minutes long. Usually they'd have like a whole pre-race, you know, race happens. It was, it was a fully elaborate thing. And, you know, I, I kind of build unique tracks for each, for each event, for each video. And those would take, I mean, it wouldn't take maybe as long as people think it, it, one video would take 20 to 25 hours of work. Probably I got it to a pretty streamlined process where, you know, I could do one lap in about, I could like film you know, photo, move, photo, move, photo. I could do one lap in like an hour, hour and a half. And so if I did 10 or 15 laps of action, you know, we're talking 15 hours probably. And then the rest of it was, you know, setting up the track and then editing takes a few hours, all that. But I, I got down to a process. It became very streamlined. At first it probably took longer and occasionally I'd experiment with very unique tracks you know youtube youtube audiences are notoriously fickle they there's they're always looking for the next thing so you got to keep it fresh and uh you know so i'd make tracks like i had a, a track that took place in like a snowstorm like a snowy village and so i added like puffy like snow sets and stuff and little like christmas cottages was like a christmas special so that nice. one took a little extra time you know i did a track that was like a figure eight with like a bridge not a figure eight like a like a demolition derby figure eight but like, like <laughs> a bridge involved like sometimes those take longer but um yeah it was lengthy and that's why i'd only upload like once every week and a half maybe two weeks as opposed right. to now i post like every day because uh you know well one now it's a full-time gig for me it's not i'm not balancing school as well but two it's you know, just talking in front of a camera, basically recording a video podcast is not quite as time consuming as photo, photo, photo. Right. That's, that got tedious after a few years. So when did it become out of the groove? When did you kind of say, okay, I, I'm not going to spend 40 hours a week or 35 hours a week doing stop motion. When, mm -hmm. when did you take it to the next level? So I was kind of, it kind of happened by force almost like almost against my will. Like I'd kind of, I did those stop motion videos through most of high school and mm -hmm. it was kind of fun, but it wasn't, it wasn't the type of thing that I guess I was like proud to like walk into class and say like, Hey, I make videos with these little die cast cars. Like I have a whole <laughs> model set up in my bedroom. Like you should come hang out and see it. Like, <laughs> yeah. At the end of the day, now, when I said that they got millions of views, then people would be like, Oh, but at the, I still was kind of like, a, you know, it's just a weird thing. So I wasn't, I've been doing them for a long time. They took a long time. It was repetitive. I was kind of bored with it already, but it got those views. It was my bread and butter. It was the thing I was known for. So you kind of get to that point where you feel like you have to keep doing it. But what forced me out of it is I, I left home. I left my parents' house to go to college. And I, my first year I lived in a dorm room with, you know, random roommate. It was some guy I'd never met from Dallas. Um, and we were squeezed into a, a room probably honestly smaller than the one I'm in right now just an average dorm room and two bunk beds two desks and a mini fridge that was about it and so quite frankly there just physically was not enough space in the room for me to set up a model racetrack and cameras and all that stuff plus the shame of it of you know taking over the <laughs> right the guy wondering what the hell is that what yeah. have I gotten myself into <laughs> he opens the door there's just a bunch of toy cars and like fake cotton ball smoke and I just like turn around and like <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to have to have that conversation so I kind of, <laughs> by default, you know, also being away from home and being away from my dad, who, like I said, for the longest time was the only guy I really talked NASCAR with. I felt like I needed an outlet to, I needed to find new people to talk racing with other people that were passionate, other people that were young and, and shared similar interests. And so that's why I started doing out of the groove, I think on like a once a week basis at first. And it, it looked honestly similar to how it does now. I mean, it was me filming in like my dorm room. So it wasn't, the set wasn't quite as elaborate. The equipment wasn't quite as good, but it was very similar. And, you know, it, it was very slow going, you know, like I mentioned at first, like those stop motion videos, yes, they took a lot of time, but 
know, people loved him. Kids liked him. Adults liked him. They'd get hundreds of thousands of views easily. My first out of the groove, like broke 1500 views. And I was like, all right, this is going to be an uphill battle. Like we're going to have to convince people that I know what I'm talking about. Like establishing 18, 19 year old in his dorm room as someone you should come to, to hear about NASCAR topics. You know, that's, that was a tall task at first. It still is in some ways. Um, but that was, it was really by force. I ended up enjoying it a lot. And even though the views were so much smaller, especially at first, it was just, it was fun. And the comments were more engaging. And, you know, I got to meet within a year or two, I was starting to meet people and talk to people that shared similar interests and everything. And it became a more, it was just a more engaging style of content. So I didn't mind the slow gain in views, the, the, the low view numbers at first and kind of adjusting to that. I didn't mind it, but really the only reason out of the groove I was really finally forced to do out of the groove was because I physically did not have space in my dorm room or the nerve to <laughs> take over that room, <laughs> that room with my roommate in there and everything like that. It was, that's really how it came together, quite frankly. So you've got kind of, and you mentioned like there were younger kids, older people who were following those stop motion videos out of the groove kind of changed what you were doing you still skew towards a little bit younger audience. It seems like obviously 150,000 followers is going to be a little bit of everybody, but how, when NASCAR is skewing towards this older fan base, are you able to keep this young fan base engaged? Do you, is there something, a secret sauce that you've found that kind of gets new fans to continue coming along as things keep going? I think at first, the first two things are just kind of inevitable. I think the first part is, is I'm fairly young. I'm 23 years old. So I think naturally young people are more inclined to watch young people close to mm -hmm. or close to their age. And then secondly, you know, me posting to YouTube, even today, YouTube is still sort of thought of to, by some people as this like new age, newfangled thing, even though it's been around a while, it's very well established. And there's always something new coming out, you know, every year it feels like, but um, just posting to YouTube primarily naturally i think especially at first point you towards a younger demographic that's the those are the people who spend the most time on youtube as kids and young adults and things like that so i think you know inevitably those two factors were always going to play a role um but secondly i, I think yeah you know, I, I think what i do that like typical nascar media doesn't always do is i'm willing to talk about you know topics um i'm willing to talk about topics that tv won't that you know a lot of that Fox NBC won't talk about that drivers mm -hmm. themselves often stray away from. I'm, I'm not controversial, but it's just like, you know, it's not really cool to talk about TV ratings, you know, yeah. Fox isn't going to talk about them. Even, even when they're good, they'll, they'll mention it, but they, they're always kind of afraid to dive too deep into that, you know, it, things like that. I, I also think naturally without out of the groove, my episodes, my videos started out really short. They were around four or five minutes long. And I think going back to what I was joking about earlier with the tension spans, it's <laughs> yeah. like, uh, you know, young fans naturally want quick. They want the information here and now, and then they want to move on to the next thing. You know, now my show is a little bit longer. My episodes are like 15 minutes long usually, but I, I edit, I edit them immensely. I cut, I cut things out. I, I trim out all of the fat, all the ums, the breaths. I, people often comment, do you even breathe? Like, oh my gosh, <laughs> no, I cut the breaths out <laughs> in between takes. But um, so I think keeping things fast, keeping things, you know, fast paced and quick, that's, also naturally going to skew towards a younger demographic. I think that's just what they kind of expect from their media these days. Um, that changes a little bit because podcasts are so huge. You know, podcasts have been around, you know, evolved from radio, basically. And radio has always been around, but, you know, podcasts are more of a long form content. I think they've kind of, podcasts in general have sort of cut against the grain. The, the going theory was condense, condense. Everything mm -hmm. needs to be short. Attention spans are, are, are very short. 
but podcasts, especially good podcasts, man, they, people gladly sit down and listen to an hour, two hours of, of a specific topic. So, you know, everything's always evolving and I'm always trying to kind of stay with that. Um, but I, I think, you know, all those factors, of course, the inevitable ones, my age, the platform, we're always going to help it be a younger audience, but I think it's just the, the, how digestible my content is, I think is really important as well. What in school did you take and, and move over to what you're doing now? That's a hard question to ask. I've been asked that question before, actually. And I don't want to sound like one of those too cool for school kind of guys that says, God, oh, college is a waste of time. You don't need college. I mean, I think that depends. I, I'll be honest with what I'm doing now with YouTube sort of evolving. I keep bumping that into my full-time <laughs> gig re- uh, recently. In hindsight, was college the most necessary thing? No, probably not. But you know, I think what college helped me a lot with the classes specifically, I took editing classes, I took camera classes, you know, you know, I kind of had to learn to make it on my own. It kind of forced me to put myself out there a bit more. Uh, you know, I, I've made some friends in college that were interested in racing, but more importantly, were just interested in making interesting content. So I learned a right. lot of stuff, honestly, from them. In some cases, I think I learned more from them, like doing film shoots on the weekends and stuff. Cause in Austin, that's, that's what people are doing. Their student films being shot all the time. And just the, the technical still, the technical skills I'd learned from doing those, I think translated a lot, but, um, you know, I took some producing classes that were really interesting, kind of learning the business of, you know, of, of media and everything like that, that stuff was helpful as well. But I think honestly, it was just learning to put myself out there more and to, and to lead projects and work on projects and collaborate on things. I think that was probably the stuff I learned most from school. That's a, that's a better answer than what I would say. I don't, I don't remember much of what I learned. <laughs> in college. I was a, I was a business major, but I don't know, maybe Edward Forty Hands. That was pretty, <laughs> that was a hard one. No. Uh, so you, it, it seemed like watching your videos, you bu- you bounce around a lot of different states. Um, where Did you live anywhere other than Texas along the way? Yeah. So I said I, I was in college for four years, but I only spent three and a half years really doing school stuff. That semester I took off, I went and worked at Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida. <laughs> I've always liked theme parks. I've always thought about doing like a second channel somewhere that's like more of a theme park focused channel, like rides and just things like that. Um, so I went and worked at Disney World for a few months and also cool. did YouTube on the side. That was exhausting. But I lived in Florida at the end of 2019. And then I spent the start of 2020 in Los Angeles. There's a school, you know, film, the film school had like a, an LA program where you, you get like an internship with a studio or something out there and you take some classes. They have a whole setup. So I spent a little bit of time on the West Coast, a little bit of time on the East Coast, but largely been spent in the Houston to Austin, Texas, bouncing back and forth. So in college, I got to say, just hats off to you for staying consistent with that through college. I couldn't imagine Thank being com- committed to something like that. Like and- I wasn't a business major. Business majors, I feel like, have it, have it rough. Way more <laughs> yeah. homework. I didn't have hardly any homework, man. We didn't so go to class. We didn't go to class. <laughs> uh, uh, that works, too. <laughs> we went to class, but we, we, yeah. C's, get deg- C's get degrees. That's right. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, but what was the by. hardest... <laughs> <laughs> what was the hardest part though like w- during school of staying consistent like what what was the hardest part of keeping up with this you, you no know, i for a long time i was not accountable to anyone it was really just up to myself i wasn't working with anyone specifically it was really just if i wanted to post a video i'm going to post a video if i don't the only person that's being hurt by that is me you know uh so you know kind of naturally holding myself accountable to that was not always easy again it helps that what I was doing on YouTube was closely tied to what I was studying in school. Mm -hmm. Um, So what I'd often end up doing though, is, is whenever there was maybe like, 
you know, you know, a project someone was working on, like in one of my classes, like, Hey, we're doing a big shoot this weekend. I'd go to some of them, but there are plenty that I missed out on often because I'd rather stay home and, and focus on my own YouTube stuff. I've always been, I've always been fine, you know, doing things on my own, kind of being independent like that. Like, like when I'm, I'm talking about like creating things and even just, I'm losing my train of thought, quite honestly. I think it's this rowdy energy drink. I haven't drank an energy drink in a year, but I, I found this in stores today. So I, I thought I'd buy it and give it a try. It tastes pretty good, but no. Uh, it really, like I said, I had to hold myself accountable. So I was basically fortunate, long story short, I was fortunate that I didn't have a whole lot of homework or super, I didn't get that involved with extracurriculars. And I'm not a big, like, I'm not a big party guy. I wouldn't go out a whole lot during college. So again, I think, yes, that's what I was getting on. I was saying I'm independent as I'm kind of, kind of a loner, you know, (laughs) I like to just kind of hang out by myself, perfectly comfortable with it. I was trying to say that in a a more uh, respectable way. (laughs) Um, But I guess that's what it really came down to is I just, time management was key. But really, I enjoyed what I was doing. I think if people always ask me, like, oh, what are you, what are tips for starting a YouTube channel? It's like, make sure you're focusing on something you're really, that really you're passionate about, that you're really interested in, because otherwise it'll be really easy to get burned out, especially if views aren't what you expect right off the bat. So I remember the days of you actually recording your show in your car from time to time. And I'm assuming <laughs> it's because uh, you couldn't, like the dorm room, you had your, your suite mate or whatever in there. I was, I was, I was always curious. Did anyone ever notice you like while you're sitting in the parking lot having this passionate conversation with yourself mm-hmm. about NASCAR? Did anybody ever notice you or you're just, uh, I mean, people are typically, they don't want to get involved. They see a guy talking <laughs> in their car like, with you with a lot of hand motions and they kind of like, just keep walking, you know, I I'd get eyes occasionally from people walking by, but I'd always be careful. I don't, again, I, I don't like to draw in too much public attention. I, I I'd carefully park in a very secluded area. Um, with just enough light peeking through the trees that I'm well lit in the car. Yeah, those are the days. Those were the days largely when I was in LA because I was again sharing a room for those couple months I was in Los Angeles and um, I just didn't, it just wasn't much space in there. That that was a case where I didn't even have enough space to set up like a tripod. You know, LA, things get cramped very quickly Mm. to become affordable. Um, So, you know, it was, that was, that that's what happened a lot there. Um, Had that beautiful golden California sun though, at least shining lights on me that was great there you um, go yeah i haven't had to record an episode of my car in like a year thankfully but <laughs> those are the days i'm glad people look back on those fondly i gosh it was, it was goofy well I've, I've told you this before but i watch youtube videos during my lunch every day and that's how i spend my time so i've i've watched you uh i don't know years now but i remember i remember that and just I was attentive the whole time. It like wasn't a big deal <laughs> that glad. you were in your car. I thought you were my... I watch videos every day and like everyone's always in their car. You started a trend. <laughs> yeah. I, like, oh. I just yeah. I like Eric's Eric's up on the trends. He knows the recording in his car. Yeah. <laughs> but to me, the reason why I was so attentive is because and why you're successful is because you're genuine and your opinion is always pretty spot on with what fans think and what I'm thinking. I'm like, yeah. And then you provide a lot more insight that, you know, normal people don't know. So um do you remember but do you remember a time where you had a certain opinion because you're not controversial but you you do have opinions on stuff do you remember a time where you're just like completely off and people were just upset about it um probably the most like hot water or the most like uh against the grain i probably ever was was when nascar first introduced at the time we called it the all-star package you know the current high downforce low horsepower package they run at intermediate tracks when they first were discussing that as a possibility i guess this would have been 20 like early middle 2018 probably um a lot of people 
in the media and on YouTube and out everywhere were, um, you know, afraid it was going to destroy the sport. We're saying this is the word they're going to turn every track into Daytona. This is going to be a disaster. This is, this is not real racing, blah, blah, blah. And some of it I agreed with, but in my videos, I tried to take a much more fair and balanced approach. And I think I came across as more optimistic or more encouraging of the package than some mm-hmm. other people did. And, and I was, I, I quite frankly, um, you know, I, I, I at least understood where NASCAR was coming from. I think NASCAR, you know, they explained it at the time, all the different reasons they wanted to use this rules package. You know, they manufacturers don't want 900 horsepower anymore. We need to attract new manufacturers. Um, you know, intermediate tracks in 2018 were super boring. That was the year Harvick and Truex and Bush dominated every race by eight seconds. It was very, other than Chicagoland, they were almost entirely impossible to watch. So I was like, okay, let's do something radical at the intermediates. Those are the, my kind of basic outlines or, or that, those are my... That was my uh, evidence, if anything. That, that was what I used to back up my claim. And uh, a lot of people didn't like that. I, I, I quickly became known as the guy that just says yes to everything NASCAR does. And you know, that was really the one big, the only big thing. I mean, naturally, I'm an optimistic person. I, I, if, you know, if I like something, I'm not going to spend my, my days every day you know, trashing it or trying to tear it down or at mm-hmm. least not offering something constructive. But that was probably the number one opinion I had that I did probably multiple videos on that each time I'd get a good number of comments or I'd see something on Twitter or Reddit or wherever where people were just oh there goes Eric again always kissing ass to Nash. <laughs> <laughs> I just want you know I just Texas 2018 was so hard to watch I wanted something better <laughs> you know? yeah I kind of thought of it's like hey if they try it if this works it's great if it doesn't work you know obviously since then like last year I did a video late in the season where I was like okay I'm officially anti this rules package now like I'll be fair this year 2021 the couple races have been fine but I still don't like this rules package that much you know it, it was never perfect and I even 2018 I was always like it's not perfect but I was the one guy willing to give it a chance what, what are some of the things that you think, I mean, they're going through, obviously the culture changes are huge mm-hmm. right now. Um, whether it be the, the rules packages coming out, new things they're doing to the car. What do you think that they're doing well in, in the short term right now? I think the biggest thing they're doing, the, the, the number one thing they're doing right now is, is has to do with the schedule. I think introducing so many new tracks and, in some cases, old tracks, but I think diversifying the schedule, some fans aren't going to like the addition of road courses. There are a lot of old, old school fans. And I'm, I, I, I think what seven, they technically have this year. I do think that's a little too much too soon. Five years from now, maybe seven would make sense, but to go from two to seven, mm-hmm. bit of a jump, but I like that. They're at least, you know, there's more uh, road courses. They've had new, like instead of two Dovers, we have a Nashville and a Dover, you know, there's, so they're even mm-hmm. adding some new ovals. They're going to change up auto club speedway, supposedly. Like, I think, what they're doing in that realm is, is really good, really makes NASCAR unique. I also like some of the new cities they're going to like Nashville, Austin cities that I think Nashville for sure has a NASCAR population, Austin living there for a couple of years. I'm not as sure, but they do have a racing population because they have that formula one track there. And both of those cities are growing fast and kind of trendy. So I, I, I don't, I do like NASCAR, you know, I don't want them to like abandon their roots or anything, but I do like NASCAR trying to be ahead of the trend for once a little bit. And so Mm. I think going into those two cities are good for sure. And uh, you touched on it a little bit earlier in your Matt Kenseth jacket. But you, you were a Matt Kenseth fan. What brought this on? Was it just because, you know, you saw him win or I don't hear a lot of like big time yeah. Matt Kenseth fans anymore. Yeah. Like most of my YouTube friends that are NASCAR fans are all, we're all like Dale Jr. fans or Jeff Gordon right. fans, or occasionally I'll, I'll meet a Carl Edwards fan. I'm like, okay, that's a little unique, but yeah, no, uh, I have not yet met a, a passionate Matt Kenseth fan. 
around my age, age demographic. I've, I've met people in the wild. I've been wearing like Matt Kenseth shirts. And I meet like, you know, older couple that are like, Oh, we used to watch Matt race in Wisconsin 20 years ago. <laughs> in the wild. Like the shirt. Yeah. So you don't see many 20 year olds that like Matt Kenseth, but no, I, I first it started, honestly, I just liked the paint scheme <laughs> again, going yeah. back to me playing NASCAR Thunder 2004. I liked the black and yellow. So I played as him. And then it turned out my parents told me later because around that same time, this was 0405 when I was first starting to be introduced to the sport. We took a trip to Georgia where my mom's one of her best friends from high school was living at the time. And she hadn't seen her in a few years. We went to visit and I go in there and she's showing me around and I see on her, her fridge, I guess must've been 2004 because Kenseth won the title in 2003. And in, two, in, in 2004, she had a, a newspaper clipping pinned to her fridge of Matt Kenseth, you know, Matt Kenseth wins the championship, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, Hey, that's Matt Kenseth. I know who that is. And she's like, Oh yeah, that's my cousin. <laughs> and I'm like, uh-huh. Oh, that's cool. And so she showed me her son's room and uh, her, her son, who was a little older than me at the time had Matt Kenseth stuff all over his room. He had like a it was either a hood or a bumper like sheet metal of Matt Kenseth nice. like, on this wall. I'm like, that's now I have Matt Kenseth sheet metal. So I'm, I'm catching up. But at the go. time I was like, that's bad. <laughs> he has all these die cast cars. And so I think from that day, that's when I was like, okay, I'm going to follow Matt Kenseth. I already liked the paint scheme. Now I have kind of a connection to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I've always, from there, you know, I just always liked his kind of no nonsense, you know, head down, go to work, get great results kind of uh, attitude usually usually stayed away from off the track drama yeah. uh well, actually his drama was usually still on the track but drama period he usually stayed away from drama um so i always respected that but that's how the matt kenseth being a matt kenseth fan really started so who do you go for now i mean it wasn't exactly i'm sure you weren't like <laughs> super gung-ho i mean i'm a jimmy johnson fan so like the last three years were miserable i'm sure <laughs> last year wasn't fun to be like Mm-mm. hey i'm i'm running out here as the matt kenseth fan who do you go for now <laughs> i i don't have a, a set favorite see it's different now because in the last two or three years i've actually gotten to meet a lot of race car drivers mm-hmm. a lot of young up-and-coming drivers that are really exciting um so like i've met Noah Gregson a few times. I know he's hit or miss. Some people like him. Some people hate him. You know, I, he's cool when I talk to him. I don't agree with a lot of things he does on the track, but he's still fun to watch. Uh, I've met Haley Deegan. Haley Deegan, another one, you know, she's some people, she rubs the wrong way. Other people really excited about her. She's fun. Uh, I've also met Ty Gibbs a couple times and I like Ty Gibbs a lot. He may become my favorite driver, but now being in my position, I, it feels weird. Like I don't think of myself as a journalist, like just talking about the facts. I just report. I'm not a reporter. <laughs> Other guys report the news. I kind of just react to it with along with everyone else. I feel like even if I do become a, a big fan of another driver, you know, I've liked in the Cup Series, I've liked Eric Jones since he was coming up through the Gibbs system because I could always see that he was probably going to replace Kenseth one day. And so I kind of liked him. I was always kind of grew up liking Eric Jones. Um, my dad likes Ryan Blaney a lot. Blaney's cool. You know, there's, there's guys I certainly like more than others for sure, but I don't think I'm ever going to, at least not for a long, long time. I don't think I'm ever going to like root for a driver quite the same way I rooted for Matt Kenseth for many years. And part of that is just because naturally I now feel like I am obligated to be more objective when judging these drivers. So like last year I was, I was, I feel like I was pretty objective when talking about Matt Kenseth's many failures, but it was painful. And I don't want to have to go through that pain again of talking (laughs) bad about somebody that I like super duper rooting for. So the best thing I can do is just not root for somebody that, that, that heavily again. (laughs) To move back a little bit more towards the, the NASCAR weekly podcast out of the groove. Um, you, you've got this kind of cream of the crop NASCAR weekly podcast is all these YouTubers that kind of conglomerated and um, you now have this huge audience. How did all that come together? How did the five of you who could try be pulling each other in different ways come together and go, let's combine forces. 
Yeah. So it really began, I was not involved with the very beginning. It was Danny B from Danny B talks and Daniel Baldwin from Danny B talks. I always call him just Danny B <laughs> even years later, but, uh, and Jarrett Lundberg who goes by the iceberg on YouTube, they started streaming together. I don't remember who reached out to who, but it was like at the very beginning of the 2018 season, one of them reached out to the others, the other, and they started streaming like once a week. And they, they could tell you, they, they'd get like four or five viewers you know, for the first couple streams they did. And so eventually they reached out to me while I was streaming one night, you know, to, you know, I don't remember what I was streaming. I was probably streaming NASCAR heat or something like that. And I remember seeing them in the chat and they were saying like, Hey, you should be on our podcast or something. And at the time I didn't, you know, nowadays I get a lot of requests to be on like certain shows and, and, and things like that. But back then I didn't really get requests to collaborate on things at the time. So I kind of, in my head, I didn't react to it, but I kind of took notice of it. And then I noticed they'd sent me a DM on Twitter after I got off. It was the same username and stuff. So I, I responded, I believe it was Danny. And I went on the show for the first time. It was just me, Danny and Jarrett. And I had a lot of fun. And that was one of the first times I'd really collaborated with anyone on YouTube. This was 2018. I was a sophomore in college. So I've been doing out of the group for a year or so, you know, getting to talk to those guys about the same age as me, got into the sport around the same time as me. I don't, that was an eye opener for me. I hadn't had many conversations like that. Uh, and it was, it was fun enough that I basically agreed to on the spot, you know, be on the next week and the week after that. And I was like, shit, I better make room in my class schedule. This is happening. Now. Uh, and then they, we added Darian a few weeks, like a couple months later. Uh, and, and he was really cool as well. So it really became the four of us for the longest time. We've had a revolving door of guests and frequent guests and co-hosts and drivers and, and media members. We've had a ton of people on the show and it really is you know, wild to see how far that grew. But I, as I told those guys, I always get gushy when they ask when we talk about it. It's like 2018, the because we started early in the year, that was the most fun year I'd had doing YouTube videos at that point. And a lot of that was because I was finally reaching that goal of being able to talk to fans my age mm. that were just as passionate about it. And, you know, for the first time in my life, I had someone, again, no disrespect to my dad, other than my dad, <laughs> to actually sit down and like talk, you know, just like just spew racing jargon with back and forth for hours. And uh, and that was really fun. And it's luckily, I mean, we're now, this is our fourth year uh, doing, doing stuff. It's probably been a little over three, year, three years now since my first appearance on the show. Mm. And uh, it's, I mean, continuing to grow and we're trying to do bigger and better things every, every season. Mm -hmm. And speaking of bigger and, and big things this February, I believe you released the out of the group podcast network with NASCAR pole position and AE engine. So how did all that come about? Yeah, so I've been working with AE Engine, uh, at least some of the people over there, and it continues to evolve. I've been working with them since 2019, I think is when I first got in contact with them. But 2020, things really started to take off. We started to work really closely. They've, they're the reasons people point out that I've had like sponsors on Out of the Groove. That's l largely due to them um, helping me out with a lot of those. Um, so they, they really helped out um, a lot for those couple of years. And um, I, you know, I didn't see them as just a, a, you know, a way to get sponsors. Like they published NASCAR pole position magazine. They had a bunch of other things in their, uh, in their repertoire. And I wanted to, you know, I figured, you know, we should take advantage of that. What more, what can we do bigger and better? Like what else can we do with all these resources y'all have? And, you know, they had the resources to do kind of like a digital weekly newsletter magazine type thing. So that became out of the groove. And now I help kind of curate some of the content on there. We try to highlight content creators and, and writers and things on that each week, previewing the upcoming race. And then with the podcast network, it was really, you know, just an opportunity to kind of spread some of the resources that I've had for 
two years now out to other creators. So we brought the NASCAR weekly podcast on board. We've brought, you know, we created an all new show with a lifetime in NASCAR featuring yeah. um, Aaron Burns and, and Ben White, who's he's been covering NASCAR since like the eighties, I believe he's been like an actual reporter in Charlotte, you know, covering the sport really closely. Um, you know, so we, and we've, we're adding, continue to try and add new shows um, in the meantime, but uh, you know, that really spawned from just how can we take this, take the, 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 the resources we have, we have a sales team that can sell sponsorship and help pay for some things. Now that we can pay for things, what can we pay for? Like, what can we buy? Let's, <laughs> let's make this thing bigger. Let's spread some of that, those resources out to, to more and more creators. And the, the next goal right now is to keep growing it and see, um, I don't know, see what happens really. It's, it's all kind of an unknown at this point, you know, 2020 was so weird with the pandemic and, and everything. I mean, I guess it's still going on. It's hopefully it seems to be kind of waning. So I think this year and next year, really going to be interesting to see where all the pieces fall into place. For sure. Is it, I hate to ask this question because it's like a job interview question, but from an outsider looking in, it seems like you kind of have an idea of where your path is going and where you want to go. Do you have a certain thing that you're working towards? Like, do you see yourself at a certain place in five, 10 years? You know, I, I the life of making YouTube videos, it's a very much a day-to-day operation. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want that to sound like I don't have a future goal or plan, you know, thinking of it from my perspective, the last four years have been spent just trying to figure out how can I get, you know, this to a level where I can dedicate 40 hours a week to it or more, you know, like, mm-hmm. and now that it's sort of there, you know, you take things one day at a time, you know, my, I, I have tons of sticky notes all around my desk because like today I woke up and the only thing I had planned on my schedule is I had to take my car to the dealership and I had to, I had to call uh, one of the guys I work with at, at three o'clock. Um, news broke this morning. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna do a video because news broke this morning. <laughs> Good thing I have a nice window to do that. And you know, I knew I had this show as well. That was also my sticky note. There's this show tonight, but during the nine to five hours, I didn't have much. So it's kind of every day is sort of a free flowing new idea. That being said, that being said, five, 10 years from now, you know, I want to be known as, as a very established and respected member of NASCAR and motorsports media. I want to um, continue giving, you know, not only content creators a voice, but I also want to feel like the NASCAR fan base has a voice specifically you know, I think NASCAR, the, the actual like sanctioning body right now is listening to the fans more so than they probably ever have. Not saying they're always going to do what the fans collectively want, but they're at least giving them a voice and they're definitely hearing them right now more than they have at, for at least in a very long time. And I, and I kind of want to continue that. I want to make sure that the vo- the collective voice and even specific pockets of voices of the NASCAR fan base are elevated. And so it's really all about, about growth. Like I see my competition these days, not so much as like other, you know, YouTubers, although, you know, there obviously is competition there. I see my competition as Dale Earnhardt Jr. and Dirty Mo Media or as, um, you know, MRN or honestly as Fox and NBC and whatever other networks sign up. Like those are the people I'm competing with and not because I want to see them fail, but because I believe there are, you know, shortcomings in their content that, you know, there are things they're not willing to talk about. As we said earlier, there are topics they aren't willing to cover. And I don't think they're always you know, giving the NASCAR fans an authentic voice. And I want out of the groove and whatever platforms I'm associated with to accomplish those goals. And I just want it to become louder and louder and louder over the next few years. And, you know, long-term, like when I was in college thinking I was going to go into film, my long-term goal was I'd like to be, I'd like to direct my own movie one day. I don't really have that for NASCAR because I feel like even now, like I was, I had to get a, I had to 
uh, a couple like a year ago, I had to, when I moved out of college, I was not living with my parents anymore. I had to like sign up for my own car insurance. And they asked me like, what is your job title? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> uh, and so I kind of stammered. He's like, oh, that's okay. We'll move on. But uh, so like, there's no real job titles in what I'm doing right now. Like nothing that's super established or definite. Like, so that's the way I kind of see it is it's always evolving. I just know, broadly speaking, what I want out of the groove and, and uh, my brand's goal to be long-term and where I fall into that hopefully is in a, in a place where I can just afford to keep doing this as a, as a full-time gig. For sure. Never know. Days of Thunder 2, I think. Would be. <laughs> That's wow. The best of both worlds. Uh, yes. I, I went to film school. Give me uh, a million dollar budget. Gosh. Well, that, so we, we started this podcast almost a year ago, uh, this upcoming May. And the reason why we started is because Chris and I, we love talking NASCAR and um, we thought we could bring a different perspective on the usual podcast um, but once we got into this, we realized that there's so many podcasts and so much NASCAR content in general out there. How much is too much? Do you think that there's a, a, a tipping point or no more the merrier? I, it sounds cliche. It's, it almost sounds like the safe answer, but I do really think the more the merrier, you know, I think because eventually the shows that don't, you know, eventually podcasts that really aren't necessarily adding to the conversation within a, a couple months, they usually kind of fade away. You'll hear about it and then they'll kind of disappear. But shows that have longevity, shows that the shows that last are the shows that are good, that people are listening to or that really are contributing something new that other shows aren't aren't doing. You know, it, it's difficult to be fully original in this game. You know, it, really, it really is. I mean, all, at the end of the day, everyone's talking about the same sport, the same events that happen mm -hmm. on the racetrack you know, on and off every single week. It's, it is difficult to be wholly unique in every single way. But uh, that being said, I, I think the more voices you have, it's almost like just throwing, throwing shit at the wall and seeing what sticks. The more yeah. stuff you throw at the wall, you know, the more stuff that's out there, the better chance that you're going to find some really great things that last for a long, long time and, and contribute great things to, to sport, to the sport and um, attract fans. So no, I, I'd say overall, the more the merrier. Yeah. Nice. Well, final question for you. If you got to choose one, which would it be? Would you be an owner, a driver, NASCAR executive, or media personality? Well, media personality is what I'm the only thing I'm even remotely qualified for. Uh, <laughs> driver. So I'm really tall. I don't remember if I've told you guys that, but I always tell people this because when I'm sitting in a Zoom call slouching, it's hard to tell, but I'm six foot seven. I'm very, very tall. Taller than Michael Walter, who I think is one of the tallest NASCAR drivers ever. Mm -hmm. I think he's like six, four, six, five. So I don't know if I'd fit in the race car very easily. <laughs> So I have to lay driver, the seat back a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, they often have like those show cars, like outside the track to like take photos with, like I've gotten in some of those and it is, is a tight squeeze and they're not even really, <laughs> you don't have to climb through the window. You just like open the little door, but it's still like, Oh gosh, this is rough. So driver may be out of the question. Uh, owner, I don't, who is it that's basically said, if you want to make money, you don't, you don't own a NASCAR team. I feel like that's like a common uh, phrase, but uh, oh, Bob Levine. Probably Bob Levine. <laughs> uh, you know, who, hopefully that sort of that's a, that narrative kind of changes in the near future. But so I, I, you know, honestly, I kind of I'm kind of with the the fans and say just let Dale Jr. decide everything. Like he kind of <laughs> so I don't I don't know that I'm qualified for that one. I guess I'll stick with media personality. That's that's basically what I consider myself today. And and you know, I think there's power that comes with that. You know, there's there's mm -hmm. the ability to do great things and and really contribute to to racing in a positive manner. And so I'll. So I'm most qualified for, so I'll stick with that. 
as a kid, it would have been cool to be a driver. I, I've never thought about being like an owner or an executive. Honestly, that's even people always ask me, you know, and you guys even ask me like, what would you change? Or what is NASCAR doing? Well, people usually ask me like, what would you change? And I'm like, man, I, there are things, but like, what's the first thing you would change day one. First thing you're the God emperor of NASCAR. What would you change? I don't man, day one. I don't know. It's that's a, that's a weighty question. Yeah. Um, so I've never really fantasized about being those things. Every kid wants to be a driver at some point in their life. So that would have been right. cool, but media media's media has been good to me so far <laughs> i want to say so i want to see i want to see you in a camera shot with tyler reddick just to see the, <laughs> stark, the stark difference I, I i accidentally snuck up on uh bubba wallace this was a couple years ago he was at like hanging out something in the infield and i just walked, walked up to him to say hi and it was kind of dark and he turned around the first thing he said to me was holy shit you're taller than you. I thought, <laughs> <laughs> whoa i was like thanks bubba i was looking at thanks bubba yeah. <laughs> i guess <laughs> I guess people people were probably pretty shocked because you know we can't see you when you're on your YouTube mm -hmm. videos. So. No, yeah, people are always it's the first thing people say when they see. It. Like I'm used to it at this point. So I mentioned working at Disney World, not to derail the topic, but I worked at the Tower of Terror ride. Oh yeah, very cool, very you awesome. You were the Tower of Terror. I, I literally <laughs> was. So I wore like the trench coat costume. So imagine a six foot seven dude in a trench coat. And you're supposed to act kind of creepy when you're working at the Tower of Terror. So I got comment after comment. You work there eight hours a day, 40 hours a week. Comment after comment about how tall you are. It was, I'm used to it. I'm certainly used to it. But yeah, sure. so, I, so people listening, if you do see me in a, at a racetrack and you can't help yourself but talk about how tall I am, I'm not offended by it at all. I'm, <laughs> I used to have like an actual like list I would keep of like witty comebacks or not comebacks, but like witty remarks to make about when people talk about my height. I need to find it again because I've lost my touch a little bit. But <laughs> no, that's, I'm used to it. Cool. Well, Eric, we appreciate you being on. I, I loved your answer to the question of sticking with a media personality. And I think that's why you've been so successful to this day is because I didn't try stayed, to drive it, well, yeah, that, but you, you've just stayed true to everything that you're, you're doing and you've, and you've set out to do. So we really appreciate you being on and we look forward to hearing more of your content uh, daily and weekly in the future. So thanks for coming on with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. I really enjoy listening to y'all show as well. You guys get some really uh, unique and interesting guests. And I'm glad you're able to have such uh, in-depth conversations with so many people. I think that's great stuff. That's, that's really cool to see. Y'all are one of the shows I mentioned when I say that uh, if you're good, you last for a while, you know, yeah, <laughs> like that's, thanks, man. so that's, uh, I'm impressed with what you guys have been doing, especially starting from scratch just a year ago. That's, that's, that's big time stuff. So thank you guys for, for having me on and, and hopefully we uh, get to talk again soon. Well, it was certainly cool talking with Eric. I think we're going to have to try the, the rowdy energy drink. What do you think? Yeah, I, you know, we give it so much crap all the time, but it clearly had him on the edge of his seat the entire time. And, uh, you know, as a monster guy, I don't want to do it. And I have a feeling it's not going to taste great. But if it gives you that extra kick in the pants on a Monday morning, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> All right, it's time for Notable News. Uh, this week, uh, we would be remiss if we're not mentioning Daniel Hemrick and Noah Gregson, <laughs> the, sto the, the story of the week. So um, if anyone somehow does not know about this, um, they had a big scuffle at the Xfinity race. Hemrick overshot his pit stall and Noah backed into him um, because he was trying to get into his pit stall. He backed in and actually hit his car. Um, apparently, Hemrick said that he flipped him off. Um, and then Hemrick went after Noah after the race during an interview, and uh, Noah didn't waste any time swinging. So my opinion here is that they were both in the wrong. Mm -hmm. What do you think? 
Noah is getting the label as the hothead in the Xfinity series. That's not going to play well going into the cup series. I mean, it, yeah, it's funny to see Clint Boyer and Jeff Gordon, their little spat there, but that's a one-off situation. Um, it's not going to win you sponsorship. It's not going to have a premier team looking at you going, that's the unstable person that I want to put in my car. I do think they're, they're both at fault here. Um, I, I put a little bit more of it on Hemrick. That's something that you could have, you know, gone and knocked on the door to Noah's trailer said, Hey, we got to talk about this. Uh, even if you're mad, do it while he's not in the middle of an interview. He realized he was going to make a spectacle by running up. And I'm telling you right now, if somebody grabs my face while I'm in the unexpectedly in the middle of an interview, I'm probably going to, try and smack the hell out of you as well i do have to say when noah threw that right hook and hemrick put a little fade back on it and then came back with a jab i was sitting there it was impressive it looked like he had a plan going into the whole thing of like i know noah's gonna swing so i'm gonna fade punch to the chin and then i know an official will jump in so well played but i do think that it was ill-timed yeah, and it, it was really ill-timed. And as far as fighting goes, it was one of the better fights. Mm -hmm. I also, my opinion is that I think they should let them fight. I don't think they should start, like, breaking them up. Just let them fight. If, Hockey once style. It, yeah, once they hit the ground, break it up. But, <laughs> yes. But they should let them fight. And, uh, it, like, listen, I don't know what Hemrick did to miss or to overshoot his pit stall. Uh, I don't know if there was something that caused that. But I know that um, maybe, like, a week or two ago i can't remember yeah. specifically what race he he sh overshot his his pit stall and hit like his tire changer um which wasn't really his tire changer it was like truex's <laughs> or denny hamlin's yeah and, and so it, he did it again so if i was Noah, i'd be pissed he, should he have backed into him and did he back into him intentionally nascar says no they didn't find him for that if if you're asking me, I'm thinking he's very well aware of where that car is and I where agree. he put it. Yeah. So he knew what he did. And he, and like Hemrick saying that he flipped him off. He's I think he's glorious he, for pressing the bounds like that. I, yeah. I don't doubt it. Yeah. And so at the end of the day, Hemrick's the one that came after Noah. Would people be like, would people be on Noah's case so much about this? Have had he not have the track record that he has? No, absolutely not. Probably not. Yeah, so that's really what kind of like instigates people like, here's Noah Gregson and going at it again in a fight and being all crazy. No one no one likes that. But really, he's not the one that started it. And if somebody was running at me and swinging, I would be swinging right back. So. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it's a, uh, you know, I, I think Noah does need to try and reverse the narrative a little bit of his character because he's going to get to the point where he is just a victim of cancellation character assassination with the way that he acts whether it's in his control or out of his control and dale jr has said on his show like noah needs to learn to get it under control and that's your boss saying that stuff uh, you better start listening because with the relationships that they have, um, you definitely have the fast track into the cup series, but I don't think it's going to play well. I mean, 
it's he right now he's got the tag doesn't does not play well with others both <laughs> on the front bumper and on the back bumper right now so uh I, you know i think he's a great driver i think he's talented but definitely needs to try and rein it in when he gets frustrated yeah but at the same time like i like passion from a driver and if, mm-hmm. it's, if it's passion i enjoy that if it's if it's like him trying to create this persona or character or like the like, villain yeah it, villain any news is good news just as long as people are talking about him <laughs> like that that stuff i don't like so if that's what he's working at like he can quit that but i mean if he's passionate about the sport and wants to fight people over it by all means so the next <laughs> thing i want to talk about is i want to talk about the grass so this has been a hot topic for quite some time so in the xfinity race again we're talking about the xfinity race um josh berry spun out and um it was one of those where he kind of saved it he he could have put new tires on it and went on his merry way maybe got put a lap down or something like that but he hit the infield grass and totally destroyed that number eight did a solid wheelie though (laughs) a solid wheelie in a 3200 pound car yeah so what's your take on this grass situation you know honestly it wasn't something that like ate at me that much um when we went to Daytona and we were running around down there, it wasn't, it, it didn't seem to me like we were sinking into the grass and we had gotten some rain while we were down there at the beach. So, you know, it didn't really set in, but you've got to think, I mean, this is a machine traveling at 200, uh, 150 to 200 miles an hour, depending on where it is hitting grass. That's not going to go well. I mean, to get that car six feet off the ground doing a wheelie, that's, doesn't seem safe we added in the safer barrier because it's not safe to crash into a a single wall at that at that speed so it does seem like we're going to get a situation where it might lead to a safety issue um it's also taking people out of play for simple mistakes like we saw in the 500 the super bowl of of racing we saw a couple guys trying to avoid things and they had to go down into the grass and it was just like tore their cars all to hell. So um, I think we, I agree with you. Uh, You've mentioned it a few times about the turf. And at first I was like, "Ah, I really don't care. Is it that big of a deal? But now it's like every time there's grass involved in a track, it's becoming a headline. So let's make it turf. Let's make it so that we don't have some outside factor deciding somebody's outcome of their race. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to the cup. Uh, <laughs> fair enough. But I mean, fair enough. I mean, you, you, I just agree with you. So you're like, moving on. I was right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, so Blaney won in Atlanta. He he got yes. the pass for Larson in the final 10 laps. Overall, the race was very long. I would say if you really like strategy, that was the race for you. Mm-hmm. Compared to other mile-and-a-half tracks this year, wasn't as good. Um, but it was an exciting finish. And so if Je- you look at Jeff Gluck's poll, um, it was like, um, I think it was pretty close to even as far as like what people thought, a good race or yeah. not. Um, and I, when when I think about was it a good race, I also think about like the ending is a big piece of that for me. So yeah, uh, to see a good battle at the end and see Blaney make that pass, um, 
I thought it was, I thought that was cool, but overall it was a little boring, I will say. Yeah. Um, but that, that has to sing for Larson that he was so close and dominant throughout the race mm. and he finished second. And that wasn't the only time that he finished second in the weekend. He also finished second in the Bristol dirt nationals, yeah. um, in the main event. So that, uh, man, that tough weekend, it, it's, it's rough to have a, a bad go, but when you finish so close both times, yeah. oh man, that hurts. Yeah, second is the first loser, and I'm sure that's replaying in his head over and over again. Uh, you know, I, I thought the race was a little bit dull. We, It's one of those tracks, and uh, speaking of Noah Gregson again, he posted a picture of his tire um, that he had at the, mm-hmm. at the end of the race. I mean, the threads were just coming apart on that thing. So uh, Atlanta is one of those tracks that it does seem like it it's eating up tires it is more of a strategy because you have to figure out just how hard you can push it and that's where larson kind of met his demise is he was on a little bit longer of a run and he was having to push the car to stay ahead and it was like this battle of if i push it too far i'm gonna blow a tire if i don't push it hard enough i'm gonna end up in second place and uh, he took the latter of the two options, which is still, you know, great for him and and the Hendrick team. But uh, it just plays into that cookie cutter conundrum that we talked about when we started this whole thing of the mile and a halfs are um, boring races right up until the end. And we got good racing at the end, which makes everybody like, it's like NASCAR. It forgives all the sins of the really, really boring long race that we had. Um, Granted, it was the first really monotonous race, but um, I I enjoyed watching it. I had it on um, while, while I was down here working in the basement and I was enjoying watching it. It it kept pulling me back, watching the strategy, hearing them, uh, talk about that. Larry McReynolds just does a great job of giving you so much information. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really teaching you about the race. And then they got into talking about, are they going to repave this track for 2022? And will the next gen car be a better setup for it? So we were learning a lot throughout the race, but uh, again, just a little bit monotonous for the casual fan. All right, it's time for Fancy Forecast. This week is going to be a tough one because we have never raced here before. It's the inaugural race. And it's not too often you see an inaugural race, like um, mm-hmm. especially a new facility. We haven't seen a new facility. When was the last one? Kentucky? Was the last time we saw a brand new facility enter? I the- think so. When I think of an inaugural race, I always think about the Indy 500 the brickyard for wait was it the brickyard 400 yeah the indy 500 different race (laughs) yeah not that one um (laughs) anyway but uh so it's the bristol dirt race this sunday we've never seen it before a lot of cup drivers don't have much experience on dirt it's really going to be interesting to see the best we can guess is drivers that have a history of dirt so they've raced a lot of dirt growing up or they prepared for this race in some way so we know that Austin Dillon, Corey LaJoy, Chris Buescher, Joey Logano, Kyle Busch, Chase Elliott, Ricky Stenhouse Jr., and Kyle Larson all raced in different divisions within the Dirt Bristol Nationals uh, that happened this past week. Um, Corey LaJoy, Austin Dillon, and Kyle Larson um, showed a lot of promise in their skills. And um, so th- that's that's a takeaway there. Um, Brad Keselowski, Eric Amarola, and Eric Jones, they've tested – um, but not specifically on on Bristol dirt. They've tested on other 
dirt tracks. So mm-hmm. it shows that they're putting in some effort. And then we've got Kyle Larson, Kevin Harvick, Chase Briscoe, Ryan Newman, Bubba Wallace, Daniel Suarez, and Martin Truex Jr. all participating in the truck race this upcoming Saturday. Mm-hmm. So um, that's going to give them a little bit of insight to how the track is. Um, another good thing is that we're actually going to see um, practice and qualifying um, yeah. So that'll, that'll give us some more information. So basically like your best guess right now, like once you start watching that, you'll, you'll be able to fine tune your lineup. Um, but who's naturally good on the dirt that that's in the cup series right now. The three that everyone's looking at would be Kyle Larson, Chase Briscoe and Christopher Bell. Um, so this is my top five. This is subject to change. Absolutely. As I start watching um, practice, the heats going on this weekend and practice, um, but I'm going to go with Kyle Larson. Um, he did get second in the final, uh, the race, the division that he was in, but that dude has so much history, just killing it on dirt. I, mm-hmm. I'm not going to be surprised if he's dominant, not dominant the whole race. Um, Christopher Bell also, um, very good at dirt. He's won the chili bowl a, a couple times, I think. Um, so I'm definitely going to see him out there. Austin Dillon is actually has a pretty good history of running dirt and being good on dirt along with his brother Ty. So I'm going to put Austin Dillon as my top five chase Briscoe as well. Um, Stuart Haas also, uh, the owner, Tony Stewart has a lot of history on dirt, so that could give them an extra advantage mm-hmm. there. So I'm going to put chase Briscoe, wow. uh, grew up, there. Yeah. Uh, grew up running dirt in Indiana. And then finally Kyle Busch. And the reason that I put Kyle Busch, he, he's not, um, known for racing dirt, but, um, he's a goodwill man. And he's really good at Bristol. And he spanked that ass on (laughs) (laughs) in the dirt nationals this past weekend. He did. Yeah. Yeah. Not the final heat. He did not do well in the final. No, not the final heat, but that, that one that you, you told me, and then I, I logged in and get, was able to watch it and he did pretty well. He looked like he was able to pilot it pretty well. Yeah, and talking about, I mean, doing double duty, man. He went and ran and won the truck race and then was just flying back to Bristol running these heats and then the final. So that that dude has a passion for racing for sure. Must so that's be my nice top. to have a private jet. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, it's really not that far. I mean, it's probably like a 30-minute flight. Um, so when it comes to garage bait, again, like I'm really stretching here because I really don't know. I'm going to say Joey Logano. He's put in okay. some extra testing and race this past week. Um, Eric Jones, he has history on dirt and also tested on dirt for this. And then Kevin Harvick, um, I'm going to go ahead and put him just because Stuart Haas and he's racing in, in trucks. So I think they like the he's old as dirt. He's old as dirt. Yes. <laughs> so that that's a top five garage bait um, bonus picks. I'm going to go with t- uh, Kyle Larson as the top Chevy, top Ford, Chase Briscoe, and top Toyota, Christopher Bell. The winner will be Kyle Larson Oof. and the, the team Hendrick and the manufacturer Chevy. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, again, this is my best guess right now. This is Monday when we're recording this. So um, we can, we're going to start learning as soon as this upcoming Friday. The schedule actually kicks off this Wednesday with the iRacing at, on Dirt on Bristol this Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on FS1. Um, real racing begins on Friday, March 26th. So the trucks, um, they practice. They have two practices, one at 3.05 p.m. and another at 5.35 p.m., both Eastern time. The heats start on Saturday. So there, there's a, quite a few heats um, where they qualify into the main race. Um, that begins at 4.30 p.m. Eastern, and um, the last one will begin at 5.15 p.m. 
Eastern. Um, the race itself is also on Saturday, so March 27th, 8 p.m. Eastern on FS1. The cup race, um, we, we're actually going to see practice this week on Friday. Yeah. So Friday, um, there's two practices, one at 4.05 p.m. and one at 6.35 p.m. Eastern. So there's just staggering the two between the trucks and the cup. Um, the heats start on Saturday at 6 p.m. Eastern. Uh, the last one starts at 6.45 Eastern. And the race is on Sunday, March 28th at 3.30 p.m. Eastern on Fox. So tune in. Make sure you're you're uh, being vigilant of what's going on before the race kicks off on Sunday. So you got your lineup stacked and ready to go. It's dirt, baby. That's all we have for you today, folks, on Going In Tight, Coming Out Loose. We got to give a special shout out to Eric Estep for joining us. Uh, we got Bristol Dirt coming up this weekend. Going to be a ton of fun. You can follow us and find the Fantasy Forecast on goingintightpodcast.com. You can follow us at goingintight underscore pod on both Instagram and Twitter. And you can find all of our episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. We look forward to talking to you all next week. Peace.